Spirit of God is present and at work in your midst. You know that the Spirit of God is present and at work when you begin to think and talk much of Jesus Christ. That's what we see demonstrated here in Peter's preaching today. Pentecost is not the transition of the church into some mystical, ecstatic world of mind-emptying, trance-inducing spirituality. At Pentecost, we don't have the introduction of a new mystery religion into the world. Instead, what we have in Pentecost and in the preaching that is shown for us here by Peter, we have a revelation, an explanation, an affirmation, an application of the historical facts about Jesus Christ. The purpose of Pentecost isn't to lead us into a spirituality by which we don't understand anything. The purpose of Pentecost is so that we understand the reality of what Jesus has accomplished in this world. And so, Pentecost is not a call to check your mind at the door and just follow after your heart. Instead, it is a call for us to understand and follow this Jesus, whom God has made to be both Lord and Christ. And so, let's follow along with this here. What we are overhearing, what we are looking at today, is a Jewish man, Peter, explaining to a primarily Jewish audience, although there were some exceptions to that, as we saw last week, some Gentiles mixed in, God-fearers mixed into this group as well. So, a Jewish man explaining to a Jewish audience who another Jewish man is and was. And you hear the passion just in the way Peter addresses them. Men of Judea and all of you who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. That's back up in verse 14. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Verse 29, brothers, I say this to you. And then verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. There's a, a lot of men language, a lot of brothers language here. We should understand that collectively. I'm sure there weren't only men who had come to hear or see this phenomenon, just as there were uh, men and women who were gathered together waiting for the Spirit of God and in prayer. So, no doubt there were men and women who were here at this as, event as well, even if maybe it was primarily men. We don't know exactly. But it's inclusive gathering up language that is used to address the people here. And it's a call to know, a call to listen, a call to hear, a call to make sense, a call to know for certain, which reminds us Luke is writing actually for a Gentile to assure him to know for certain Theophilus. And Peter wants these Jews to know for certain as well. So, point number one from Peter is this, and it goes, I'm going to work right through this text today. Jesus was a man. You know he was a man. You saw him as a man. His family was from Nazareth. He grew up in Nazareth. He was a man. But as you know, he was not just 
any other man. The fact of the matter is, this man whom you saw, Jesus, he was attested to you by God, which is to say he had the approbation of God on him, and you know it. You saw that in his life. You saw the things that he did, the signs, the wonders, the mighty things that he did in your midst. Now, Peter is preaching this here. Remember that Luke has already written a book about that. He's already written the Gospel of Luke, so he's already set all of those things out. But Peter here, no doubt, filled in some of the gaps here about what kind of things it was that Jesus did. And Jesus himself, in the course of his ministry, said, listen, even if you have trouble understanding the words I'm saying and believing in me, at least believe in my Father for the sake of the works themselves. As Peter then makes this assumption, you know this man, Jesus, and you know the works that he did among you, he assumes that that is, in fact, irrefutable by them. And indeed, so it is. They couldn't say, no, 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 he didn't do anything like that because they were all witnesses of the things that Jesus had done. And so he can make the assumption, you know this, you know this is what this man was like, and you know this is what he did. Even if they made a fundamental attribution error as it relates to Jesus, in other words, they attributed the things that he was doing to magic, to sorcery, to perhaps demons who were involved in this taking place. Nevertheless, the things that he did, they could not deny. And Peter's next point is a corollary to this. The other thing that you cannot deny is that you crucified him. This one who had the attestation of God, you killed him. You killed him by the hands of lawless men. Now, lawless men here could refer to Romans, whom the Jews would say are people without the law, or it could re relate to the injustice of the proceedings themselves against Jesus. But nevertheless, the point is for Peter to draw out the culpability of those who killed Jesus Christ. And we'll pause here for just a moment and say a few things about the culpability. Who killed Jesus? Well, you can point specifically, of course, to those who drove in the nails, who hung him up on the cross. You can talk about those who ordered that execution. And we can talk about those who were significantly involved, significant players in that execution itself, Judas and Herod and Pilate. And then, of course, we can talk about Jewish leadership and the crowds that were around in Jerusalem shouting, crucify him. And no doubt, some of the people in this crowd that had gathered today were some of those exact same people. And so, when Peter says, you crucified him, while that has a meaning that can be applied to all of us, which well, just I'll, I'll come right back to that in a second, it has special focus on these people who were in Jerusalem and who perhaps at least shouted out, crucify him. It hit them. In fact, yes, they were the ones who had done exactly that. Now, of course, 
We sing songs and we recognize, and this is essential for us to recognize, that we don't need to blame Jews for the death of Jesus. We don't need to blame Romans for the death of Jesus. We need look no further than ourselves to understand and find culpability in the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for sinners, and so we sing together, I crucified him. The culpability is a shared culpability, but no doubt when they heard it, they heard the particular significance as it related to them. But then, of course, Peter gives this great reality that our actions, and this is the one that is found in verse 23, our actions are bracketed by God's plan and His foreknowledge. Whatever you did, you did as part of what God had established long ago, needed to be done, and would be done. I'm not going to go into depth about that today, as Reformed people were tempted to go into depth about that, but frankly, that was the point of Luke 24, this providence of God that overarches all of our human actions in leading to the death of Christ, and it was, of course, the point of Acts 1 as it related to the betrayal by Judas. God foresaw that. That was part of God's plan as well. And yet it is essential to recognize this sovereignty of God that is herein described. You killed the man. Jesus of Nazareth was a man and you killed him. Verse 24, but God raised him up. And then this great phrase that follows after it, loosing the pangs of death, for it was not possible for him to be held by it. Loosing the pangs of death is a, is a, it's a mixed metaphor. It's a play on words a little bit. Pangs are typically associated with birth. Death is here pictured for us as a kind of anti-womb whose pangs, whose pain holds children, ensnares, entangles children, and holds them back from life. Death resists giving birth. It keeps and it ensnares. But even death's strong bonds are not enough to hold him. Death itself is forced into a painful labor, and it must release, it must give birth to life, even though in pain and in entanglement, death wants to hold him back and hold him down. Coffins and tombs and stones are designed by death to keep you in. But death can't hold back this life. And if you need to see how this references throughout Scripture, think about two things. The chaos and the darkness with which the Scriptures began cannot hold back the bursting forth of life from the water in Genesis chapter 1. And think again of what we just finished in the book of Exodus. The anti-womb. I labored. To explain to us, to show to us that Egypt, 
despite all of its best efforts, was used as an incubator, as a womb for the firstborn son of God. Egypt, in pain, tried to hold back the children of God. I will not let them go forth. You will not go out from me until God says, that's enough. You cannot hold back my firstborn. The waters have to separate, and I am bringing out my people. That's the picture of death that is used right here as well. Death, like Egypt, is trying to hold them back, trying to keep them in. But it is impotent. The cords of death encompassed the man. The cords of Sheol entangled him. The snares of death confronted him. That's all from Psalm 18. You can go home and read it later today. But God raised him up. Well, how can that be? Well, that can be when the man is more than a man. And that's Peter's second point. Jesus, the man, is the Messiah, the Christ. And this requires explanation. How can this one be the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed king? And so Peter turns to David, the anointed, the great anointed king of Israel, to explain how this one can then be the Messiah. And he goes to this passage that we read in verses 25 through 28 from Psalm 16, where David is writing a psalm in the first person, a psalm which rejoices in life and proclaims that God's Holy One will not see decay or corruption. And so the question becomes, well, what is he talking about? What is David talking about here? Because, brothers, here's what we can do if you want to. If you want to prove this point, here's what we can do. You and I know that David died, that David was buried, and his tomb is right over there. And if you want to, we can go over together and we can dig up the bones. And you can see for yourselves, just as we all know, but we don't have to do that, that David died, he was buried, he's right there, he decayed. How can he then be writing about the Holy One who will not see corruption, who will not experience the natural decay of the flesh in death? He must be talking about someone else. And so Peter says, David was a prophet knowing that God had promised to put one of his descendants on the throne. And if we had time, and I'm sure Peter did, Peter would quote all of the places where that is promised and go through all of the promises. David spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Christ is Messiah. Christ is anointed one, just like David was an anointed one. So there would be one coming a Messiah, a king, an anointed one who would not see decay. Now, if you're Jewish and you're in the audience, you're going, okay, yes, that's correct. We agree. That's the interpretation. The Messiah would come. The Messiah would experience this resurrection or this non-decay. And then Peter, in verse 32, connects the dots. This Jesus... God raised up, and of that, we're all witnesses. You want to challenge us on it? We all saw it. 
We all saw what God did with this one that he raised up. We can explain it to you. We can tell you about Joseph of Arimathea who came and took his body down and wrapped him up and gave him a tomb to be put in. We can tell you about the women who gathered up the spices and went and anointed him with all of the spices because we thought he was going to decay. We thought they were going to be necessary to cover up the odor, to slow the process perhaps of his decay. But it did not take place. This Jesus, God raised up. We are the witnesses. And Peter probably pauses here to let it sink in. So you're saying that this Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But there's more. Point three. Jesus isn't just a man, and he isn't even just the Christ. He isn't even just the Messiah, another anointed king who will come to reign on a throne in Jerusalem, albeit a resurrected Messiah. He isn't just that. He's one more thing. He ascended. God took him to his right hand. It is mentioned a number of times in the text that is before us today. God took him and placed him at his right hand. And there, having received the gift of the Spirit at the right hand of God, Jesus then pours out that Spirit onto his people, and that is what you are seeing today. Now, you've got to go back here to verse 17. You can't do that unless you have your Bibles open. The, the, the bulletin is not there. But at verse 17, here's what it says from Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Peter says, Jesus is at the right hand pouring out the Spirit. What does that then say about Jesus? Pause. Think it through. Work it through. What does this have to be saying? And he clarifies. David didn't ascend to heaven. David was our great king. He was our great human king, but he didn't ascend. He did not go up to heaven, and yet here it is written, Psalm 110 now being quoted, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus had quoted the same verse. He had quoted this same psalm back in Luke 20. And there Jesus emphasizes the paradox of a Lord above David, who is in fact David's son. How could that be? Jesus causes them to reflect on that paradox. And here, as Peter brings this verse to us again, that whole idea is included. But what is emphasized in particular by Peter is not just the Lord said to my Lord and, and working through exactly what those words mean, but 
the words, sit at my right hand. The ascension is what is emphasized. The place above any earthly place, the throne above any earthly throne. Pause. What does that mean? Three-point sermon. Jesus is the man. Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus is the Lord. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. So it went one, two, three, man, Christ, Lord. And he reverses the order. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Made him Lord and Christ. It's tough language. We kind of go, wait a minute, made him? A lot of the commentators look at that and say, well, it's, it's, it's the idea that he revealed him to be that which he truly was, Lord and Christ. Well, okay, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate this idea of trying to protect the fact that Jesus has been the eternal Son of God and has always ruled with authority from the right hand of his Father. But something has happened here. Something has happened. In space and in time, he left his Father's throne above. The one who was always ascended which you can't even say ascended, because he was always there. He was always at the top, descended. He became incarnate. He became a man. He became Jesus of Nazareth. And in space and time, he was born. He lived. He was anointed by the Spirit of God. He died and was buried. And the emphasis here, the idea is, is Jesus is truly of the seed of David. He truly came from David. One of David's descendants is the man, Jesus. In space and time, he was raised. He was ascended to the right hand of God. And in that, something wonderful and something new and something essential has happened. Something different something that had never happened until that time. God brought a man and made a man to sit at his right hand. God made a man and gave him the title Lord and Christ. A human, a person is now dwelling in the flesh, in heaven, in the presence of God. The God-man is there. There's a profound question that goes through the Old Testament. Who can dwell in the presence of God? Who can stand to be there? Who can see God? Who can get up to the mountain of God? And the Old Testament is just waiting for somebody to answer this question, how does a man dwell in the presence of God? And now a man has gone to that place. Now, if you'll allow me to borrow for one second from Paul. I know Paul isn't even converted yet. 
But if we can just borrow one second from Paul, what Paul wants to say about that is the fact that a man is now in heaven, the God-man is now in heaven, means that our flesh can also dwell in the presence of God. Because until that man got to that position, there was no way for human flesh to be able to be in that position. And the significance of the death, the resurrection, and now the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father is that you and I have the hope one day of dwelling in our flesh, in the presence of the one who is holy, holy, holy. And, brothers of Israel, you killed him. Well, what do you do? How are you going to change that? What do you do when you can't undone what you've done? Words are spoken. You can't get them back. You've hurt someone with actions or words. You can't get it back. You'd like to grab them back. You can't do it. It's out there. What are you going to do? You killed Jesus. You've sinned and you can't make it right. What do you do when you're, you realize that guilt isn't somebody else's problem, that guilt is, in fact, your problem? What do you do when you've killed Jesus? How do you make atonement for killing atonement himself? The facts about Jesus are not bare facts. Lots of facts come into our lives. You get bombarded with them day after day, all the time you hear facts, irrelevant facts. Deer replace their antlers every year. Nothing. Sorry, that was a conversation some guys and I were having Wednesday night. It's irrelevant. It doesn't make any difference to my life. But that this one has ascended, and I killed him. What do you do? And the answer is beautiful, and the answer is simple, and the answer is crystal clear. And it is the oft-repeated words. They are oft-repeated because they are the clarion call of Peter and then of all the church to men of Israel and to men of every nation and tongue and tribe and race. And they're the words you know. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will receive the Holy Spirit. There are the words for us. To agree with God, to reorient our entire life around Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. The posture, the only posture that we can take then before God and before that guilt is one of reception. We have to receive. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 41. So those who received his word, we are beggars at the feast. To those who will call on the name of the Lord Jesus, because they have in fact already been called by Jesus, to them is given the gift of the forgiveness of sins, the pouring out of the Spirit, and life everlasting. That is the work 
of the Spirit of God. For us, what was true of Jesus becomes true as well. The pangs of death are loosed. The cords of death begin to unravel and will not be able to hold those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Men and women, boys and girls, call on Jesus, the Lord and Christ, and receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Spirit.